Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Again, it's an honor to be with you all. Uh, throughout the entire day today, uh, and uh, uh, a real joy to uh, just see all that God is doing here at Clearbrook uh, in your church. Through all of your staff, we had lunch with a number of them here in the Fellowship Hall after the morning service, and uh, that was a special blessing, all these Liberty grads uh, from various programs, and delighted that uh, God is uh, using uh, all of them here in your midst uh, and uh, enjoyed spending time with uh, the entire family. So thank you very, very, very much. Now, <clears throat> this title is a little bit to the edge. Uh, it could be called Seven Huge Mistakes, uh, Seven Huge Problems, whatever, Seven Huge Lies uh, about Bible prophecy. Now I want to remind you, the good news about Bible prophecy is for who? Believers. The bad news part is for unbelievers. It's not bad news for the believer. Uh, the message of Bible prophecy is good news. We win. Uh, that those that are in Christ will be with Him for all eternity and will be under the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ who is pictured in the Bible as the bridegroom of the church, the bride of Christ, uh, etc. But in the meantime, uh, we also realize that there are serious prophecies of coming judgment and wrath on uh, unbelievers that are left behind. So we can't answer every possible question in one night, uh, but uh, you can go to our website, thekingiscoming.com, uh, and they cut the lights so you can see this a little more clearly. Uh, but uh, if you go to that, that's our TV ministry uh, website, and there are hundreds and hundreds of questions on there, all kinds of product and information, etc. Uh, again, we're on both uh, Dish and Direct TV tonight at 8. Uh, we're on the uh, Thomas Road app uh, from the Thomas Road Church called Hope Now TV. That's tonight at 9. Uh, and then uh, we're on Daystar, uh, if you get that on your TV, the Daystar Network tonight at midnight. Now, I don't expect you to stay up till midnight, so you can DVR that uh, and watch it whenever you want to. Uh, it's on at 9 p.m. in California, and we have a large audience out there, so uh, that's the reason for the timing on all of that. And then we're on the internet on what's called His Channel. Uh, the His Channel uh, covers a number of uh, uh, television preachers, etc., and I'm on there about five times a week. So uh, if you take a look at any of those options, uh, you can find us. But uh, I, I said this morning, I want to speak to seven things that tend to be confusing to a lot of people uh, on the issue of Bible prophecy. Uh, the seven lies, mistakes, challenges, whatever you want to call them, are number one, the word rapture is not in the Bible. So why do you guys believe in the rapture? It's not in the Bible. Number two, many people believe that Satan is already bound by the power of the death of Christ on the cross. 
Didn't Jesus say he already saw Satan fall? So is the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, has that already taken place? And Satan is already bound. Number three, there are those that believe we're already in the millennium. That the millennium is not limited to a thousand years. That it's simply symbolic of a long period of time. And since the church is the expression of the kingdom of Christ, we're already in the millennial kingdom. Therefore, number four, the church replaces Israel in the plan and purpose of God. Uh, that view says the blessings that were announced to Israel have been forfeited by Israel's rejection and have been taken by the church. That the church is the new Israel. Now again, you may have never heard some of these things, but they're very prevalent in many churches. Uh, number five, the church will go through the tribulation period uh, and suffer under the judgment of Christ during that time. Number uh, six, the Antichrist can be identified today. And you'll often hear people saying they think they know who the Antichrist is uh, and uh, name him. And it's usually, again, some president they did not vote for. Uh, and then number seven, that we can actually predict the date of the rapture because God gives believers special knowledge about these things. Now, before we tackle the seven questions, take your Bible and let's go to the end of the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, the second letter of the Apostle Peter, chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Notice what it says in that verse. We also have a more sure word of what? Prophecy. Whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Prophecy is like God's flashlight, God's spotlight shining in a dark place to give us confidence about the future. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. In other words, until Jesus comes, we have a more sure word of prophecy to guide us through the darkness of our times to understand the future. Then he says in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake or spoke as they were moved by the who? Holy Spirit. That Bible prophecy is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Now, there are churches today that virtually never talk about Bible prophecy. They never deal with it uh, and say, well, uh, it's confusing. It causes divisions uh, and opinions, uh, etc. But the Bible is about 25% prophecy. So if you don't ever teach on Bible prophecy, and you don't ever preach on it, there's no way you can preach the whole counsel of God because you're avoiding 25% of the Scripture. Uh, that uh, prophecies that were already fulfilled in the past give us confidence that the prophecies about the future will also be literally fulfilled as they have been over the centuries. Now, let's tackle the seven questions. Number one, the rapture word is not in the English Bible, and that is true. 
But as I said this morning, the word Trinity is not in the Bible either. But we believe in the Trinity, the triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with co-equal attributes of deity. The concept is there, whether the English word is there or not. We are worshiping today on Sunday, but the word Sunday is not in the Bible. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Well, that was Sunday. So why do we meet on Sunday? We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday is a resurrection celebration, etc. In fact, the words second coming are not in the Bible. In fact, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Uh, the concepts are there whether the English word is there or not. So the issue is not the English word, but the concept. Is this concept clearly taught in the Bible? Well, as we saw this morning in the morning service, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is that passage that says, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's how it's translated in English. And again, if you like to mark things in your Bible, you could circle those words, caught up. That's the rapture term in the Bible. Notice we're caught up together with them, the dead. So at death, the spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. But at the rapture, the spirit comes back with the Lord. The body is resurrected, body and spirit reunited, and we that are alive and remain body and spirit, are automatically raptured and glorified and caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air, not on the earth. The rapture takes place in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the English term is caught up. Paul wrote originally in the Greek language and wrote the letter to the Thessalonians in Greek. In fact, the entire New Testament is originally in Greek. In the Greek language, the word for caught up is harpazo, uh, caught away, snatched away, instantly, quickly. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus would come like a what? Thief in the night, uh, and instantly steal the bride away before declaring war on the world. Also, you have a passage in uh, the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, uh, that refers to our gathering together unto the Lord in English. And in Greek, it's epi-synagoge. Now, what word do you see in there? Synagogue. The synagogue was an assembly of the Jewish believers in the Old Testament era. To be assembled together is the idea. Caught up in the rapture and assembled together as the family of God. So the question is not whether there will be a rapture, but when will the rapture occur? There has to be a rapture. So don't fall for people who say, the rapture is not in the Bible. Uh, this is not a biblical idea. The Bible doesn't teach a rapture. No, the Bible teaches the dead are raised and the living are caught up. So you have to put it somewhere on the timeline. 
The issue is not if there will be a rapture, but the timing of the rapture. Now, under timing, uh, those of us that believe the rapture will occur before the time of tribulation hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus will come pre-before the tribulation. There are some who believe He'll come in the middle of the tribulation. And there are some who believe He will come post after the tribulation is over. So some teach, will go up in the rapture, then the wrath of God is poured out on the unbelieving world. That's the view your church teaches. It's the view I believe. And uh, this is not just some odd idea. Uh, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, uh, Jack Graham, I could go on, Billy Graham, endless numbers of preachers have always taught a pre-tribulational rapture. But there are some who think the church will go through the tribulation uh, and that the coming of Christ is post-tribulational. Uh, then a fourth option is a-tribulational. A is short for anti. There is no tribulation. Or some will say the whole church age is a time of tribulation. So we've always been in the tribulation period and they do not limit it to the seven years of tribulation that are stated in the book of Daniel uh, and then uh, emphasized as well uh, in the book of Revelation. So those are different views that born-again Christians hold. Doesn't mean you're not a believer if you hold a different view, but the timing issue is important because I think it fulfills Jesus' promise to the church. And we looked at that extensively this morning, and it will eventually be available uh, on uh, Facebook or whatever. So when you think of John 14, Jesus tells the believing disciples, Judas has left the room, I'm going to the Father's house, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And seven times he's going to say you, you, you. The rapture is only for who? The believers and nobody else. He's coming again for those that have put their faith and trust in Him. The bridegroom is coming for the bride. And the New Testament makes it clear that the church of born-again believers are the bride of Christ. So we shouldn't expect Him to come for everybody else. And as I suggested this morning, I don't believe that you send the church through the tribulation period, pour the wrath of God on her and beat up the bride, uh, and then take her to the marriage. I don't think that symbolism works well at all. He loved the bride. He died for the bride. He gave himself for the bride. And he's coming again for the bride. And all the members of the bride said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Number two, mistake people make. Some teach that Satan is already bound by the power of the cross. All amillennial and post-millennial teachers hold that view. Now again, pre-millennial means Jesus comes before the millennial kingdom. Post-millennial, after the millennial kingdom. I don't know how that works, but that's a view. Or amillennial, there is no literal millennium. Uh, and they would point to verses like 2 Peter 2.4, that certain angels are in chains of darkness reserved unto judgment already. 
Or Luke 10, 18, when Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, is he talking about when Satan fell way back in the beginning of creation uh, and took a third of the angels with him? Or is he talking about when Satan is finally bound in the abyss? The issue is not if Christ can bind Satan, but when will he do that in the sense that it's described in the book of Revelation. Now, in Matthew 12, 28, they will argue, uh, Jesus said, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Uh, that you should know that I'm the promised Messiah, I'm the king, and the kingdom is here because I have power over Satan right now. Uh, or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house uh, and spoil his goods, rob him, except he first bind the strong man, then he will spoil his house. So the verse is the idea, Jesus will defeat the power of Satan so that he can steal people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, uh, etc. The problem is, those who argue Satan is already bound fail to distinguish between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In the first coming, yes, Jesus comes and he resists Satan's temptation in the temptation. He deals with Satan's uh, resistance to his ministry uh, numerous times, etc. He casts out demons to show his power over Satan and Satan's kingdom. But ultimately, in order to secure our salvation, what does Jesus do? Goes to the cross and dies for our sins, and then rises from the dead. But the final binding of Satan in Revelation 19 and 20 says, the beast was taken, the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, and these were both cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then chapter 20 of Revelation goes right on and says, and he cast Satan into the bottomless pit. And the Greek word is the abyss. And shut him up, set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. It's one of the surprising verses of the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is defeated, the false prophet is defeated, Satan is bound in the abyss, and after a thousand years, you let him out to test the hearts of those that have been born during the millennium. Are they serving Jesus because he's ruling in the kingdom with a rod of iron, or because they really have a heart for God? And the heart is tested, and there is finally a great revolt at the end of the millennium. In fact, that's on my program tonight, I talk about the final revolt, uh, the final battle after Armageddon. That Armageddon is not the last battle in the Bible. There's a, Armageddon takes place before the millennium. The final revolt takes place after the time of the millennium. But notice several things. First of all, when is the binding of Satan described in the book of Revelation? After the battle of Armageddon. 
The beast and the false prophet are defeated, and then Satan is bound. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And then Satan is bound in the abyss for 1,000 years. Well, if you teach that Jesus bound Satan when he died on the cross, there have been nearly 2,000 years of church history. So the 1,000 years then cannot be literal. So in amillennial, postmillennial teaching, they just simply say the 1,000 years is symbolic of a long period of time. That's all it means. It's not a literal 1,000 years. But in the book of Revelation, it begins with the binding of Satan, and the 1,000 years ends when Satan is loosed. So I ask them, so when's Satan going to be loosed? Well, they always look at you and go, I don't know. Now, early on, uh, there, there were Christian teachers like Augustine who suggested uh, that uh, Satan was bound by the power of the Roman Empire. That when Constantine became a Christian in approximately 325 A.D., he bound unbelief by making Christianity the legal religion and then ultimately the preferred religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, with that idea, the idea then followed, if there's a literal thousand years, Satan would then presumably be released somewhere around the year 1325, which is when John Wycliffe writes his book that the Pope is the Antichrist, because he believes the Pope is, or excuse me, the devil has been released. Uh, again, they misunderstand where the thousand years belongs in uh, Bible prophecy. But uh, be that as it may, notice in this text, he shut up, locked up, sealed in, cannot get out, cannot deceive the nations, and then is released after the thousand years for a brief period of time to foment a final rebellion, finally comes under the permanent judgment of God, and then Jesus throws Satan in the lake of fire. Don't think that the devil throws people into the lake of fire. He doesn't. God does. That he has prepared hell for who? The devil and his angels. In fact, even hell, uh, like the city jail, is thrown into the lake of fire, the penitentiary, where they are suffering eternal punishment forever and ever and ever. So the question is, if Satan is already bound, then why are people still deceived? Uh, why is there still deception? Why is there still war uh, on planet Earth if the devil is already bound? Now, is the devil limited by the power of Jesus? Yes. Does God allow the devil to exist? Yes. Is God greater than the devil? Yes. Will God limit the devil? Yes. He told him with Job, you can only go so far and set limits on what suffering he could bring to Job, etc., and will God ultimately judge the devil? Yes. Will he eventually eliminate the devil? Yes. But is the devil still active today? Absolutely. Peter said, Satan wanders about like a what? Roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we were talking about R.C. Sproul earlier. When Sproul's asked that question, he says, well, Satan's already bound by the power of the cross, but he's on a long chain. I guess it goes all over the planet. Uh, whatever. Uh, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, Satan hindered his ministry of the gospel uh, and that he even hindered his body. 
uh, that he battles against God's people, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. That he's in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, who now, present tense, works in the children of disobedience. Now, some who teach that Satan is already bound say, well, he only works in the children of disobedience, not in the lives of believers. Well, then why did James say to believers, resist the devil and he will do what? Flee from you. Why are believers told to resist if Satan is already bound? Now, Satan is not bound in the final sense that he will be during the millennial reign. Now, if I were teaching on the millennium, I would remind you, you only get a literal theocratic kingdom on earth when the literal king comes back. When the king comes, then you have a literal kingdom. In the meantime, we as believers are citizens of a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is king and sits on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He rules in the hearts of believers, yes. And it's okay, I think, to say that we're part of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, John himself said in Revelation 1, I'm your fellow companion in the kingdom, uh, etc. The spiritual kingdom. But Jesus is not literally in Jerusalem, ruling with a rod of iron and enforcing a Christian rule on society. But when he returns in the millennium, then every school will be a Christian school. Every hospital will be a Christian hospital. You'll have the Son of God ruling in person while Satan is bound. Now, that doesn't mean that in the millennium everybody's saved, but everybody will have a clear opportunity to know the Savior uh, and be under the influence of a Christian society, uh, which we are losing every single day that goes by in our country today. It's just slipping away from us totally. We're being overrun with secularism uh, and with unbelief. Uh, and it's tragic. Uh, those things that we often took for granted 50 years ago, 100 years ago, are not only going away, but you have a generation today that is reinterpreting all of those things to say the good things of the past were really bad uh, and uh, that we need to defame our heroes. Uh, we need to run down our society in essence, blow it all up and hope something better comes along. That's not going to happen. The depravity of the human art is not going to make something better. They're going to make something what? Worse, sooner or later. So while we hope for the coming of the Lord and the literal kingdom on earth to come one day, we're not there yet. Number three, that leads to the idea we're already in the millennium. Amillennial and postmillennial teachers say the church age is the millennium. Well, it's been more than a thousand years. Now, that doesn't work for them, so they just say it's symbolic of a long period of time. St. Augustine was the one that came up with this back in about the 400s AD. Until Constantine made Christianity legal, Christians were an illegal, illegitimate religion having to grow underground, uh, having to hide often, etc. But the church was growing, people were getting saved, and they were making an impact on society. And if you read the early church fathers in the first centuries of Christianity, they believed that one day the Roman Empire will collapse and ultimately Jesus will come 
and set up a literal kingdom on earth. Well, by the time of Augustine, the Roman Empire had become Christian. Israel had been destroyed and eliminated for nearly 400 years. When the Jews revolted against the Romans in 70 AD, the Romans marched in, destroyed the second temple, in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, that the temple would be destroyed, and Israel was eventually removed from the map. If you were watching the news last week, what happened in Israel that was unique? They suddenly discovered two more Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the archaeologist at Liberty, Dr. Price, has been over in a number of those caves. Uh, they found pots that the scrolls had been in, but they'd already been robbed. They were gone. The pots were broken, but they're Dead Sea Scroll pots, etc. Uh, he did that uh, before COVID. And he's been saying all along, we've got to get in those caves because there's a lot more stuff out there before these are lost forever. But you've got to go in and dig out all the dirt and all the rubble and all the junk. While the one cave, called the Cave of Horrors, called that because they found 26 skeletons in that cave, you have to rappel down on a rope to get in, and they found two more copies of biblical books. One was Zechariah, and I forget what the other one was. But uh, the point is, those come from a revolt in 130 A.D., called the Bar Kokhba Revolution, in which a guy named Bar Kokhba, a Jewish guy, claimed he was the Messiah. And he would lead a revolt against the Romans. This is after 70 AD. They've already been badly beaten and scattered. And there's one more revolt, and the Roman Emperor Hadrian sends the army in. They kill everybody, put the revolt down, and Hadrian, the guy who built Hadrian's wall between England and Scotland, same guy, decides, I'm going to change the name of the country. I'm not going to call it Israel anymore. I'm going to call it Palestine. Palestine is Latin for Philistines. You couldn't give Israel a worse name than to call it Palestina. Uh, Palestine... And he changed the name of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina, after the Capitoline family of the Roman emperors. Now, Augustine comes along then, 300 years later, and he's thinking, Israel's gone. They're never going to come back. The promises to Israel then must not be literal. Uh, and a premillennial coming of Christ must not be what the Bible is teaching, and he suggests that the millennium is not literal, that it's amillennial. This view is affirmed by the Council of Ephesus in 451 A.D. They condemn premillennialism as a heresy. So why don't you find premillennial teaching in the Roman Catholic Church? Because the Roman Catholic Church decides it's not in the Bible. Uh, and they interpret the thousand years as merely symbolic and actually end up believing that all the years of the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages are the Golden Age of the Church. The issue is then that the Church must bring in the Kingdom Age according to amillennialism and postmillennialism. They're not looking for the coming of the King. They're looking for the Church to Christianize society and literally bring in the kingdom 
on earth. Constantine legalizes Christianity in 325 A.D. They eventually set up what's called the Holy Roman Emperor Pyre, which historians have said was neither Holy Roman nor an empire, but be that as it may. And in Catholic theology, Peter gave the keys of the kingdom to the Pope, and the Pope is to bring in the kingdom. That's why he's called the vicar of Christ on earth, the sub-king who rules for Jesus. In Catholic theology, only the Pope can bring in the kingdom. Now, in our modern world, or postmodern world as it now is, uh, it's pretty hard to imagine Christianity being forced on the whole world. So what do you find the Pope doing? Running around the world, meeting with all kinds of religious leaders, trying to get some kind of cooperation on general religious ideas. He was just in Iraq and met with the head of the Shiites, uh, the Iranian extremists, uh, etc., who hate the nation of Israel. My granddaughter is serving as a mission. Well, I can't say publicly what she's doing. She's in Iraq right now. She's been there for several months. We'll be there through the summer. Uh, and uh, she was actually in the town of Erbil the day the Pope flew over in the helicopter uh, and landed there, etc. In Catholic theology, if they're right, Pope's got to bring in the kingdom. In Reformed Presbyterian theology, they believe in what's called Reconstructionism, that Christians need to take over the government and reconstruct the laws and force everybody to live by Christian standards, that you impose the law on society. And they often point to Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister in Holland back in Amsterdam uh, at the turn of the end of the 19th, turn of the 20th century uh, as kind of the ideal Calvinistic leader of uh, a reconstruction of the government. Well, a hundred years later, you got to ask the question, how are they doing in Amsterdam spiritually these days? Not good. Uh, it's not going real well. Calvin was in Geneva. How's that going? Not good. Uh, both cities are overrun with secularism. In charismatic theology, postmillennialism becomes dominionism. Take dominion in the name of Jesus. Take dominion over the devil. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. Uh, chase out the evil political leaders, etc. And, and assume that eventually there will be a great revival in the last days. And the great revival will sweep everybody into the kingdom. Well, how's it going with the great revival these days? Not real good. Now, I hope there will be another great revival. I hope there will be another great moving of the Spirit of God before it's too late. But right now, I don't see any glimmers of that on the immediate horizon. I see the Lord working in some places powerfully, but in other places, Christianity's been nearly snuffed out in Europe. And if we're not careful, it'll be snuffed out in America. Uh, and ultimately, the only growth of Christianity going on today is in South America and in Asia. Uh, Africa's pretty much flat. It's already had an impact there, but it's not growing beyond its initial impact, etc. In all this thinking that we're already in the kingdom, then why don't we see the evidence of a literal kingdom on earth? Jesus is not literally in Jerusalem ruling. So the question is, if we're in the kingdom, why is there no world peace? Satan has to be bound first. 
Uh, and uh, I don't have time to go into Daniel 2, the vision of the statue, the stone that falls on the statue that represents human government and obliterates it and the stone fills the whole world. That's the second coming, not the first coming. Uh, why do we still have world governments uh, if the kingdom of God is to replace human government? And in Acts 1, when Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven, the disciples said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And he said, no. You go to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come on you and be my witnesses in the whole world. Uh, that would have been the perfect time to say, you are the kingdom. Go spread the kingdom. He didn't say that. You'll get the kingdom, but not now. You'll get the kingdom when the king returns. The key to understanding the kingdom is to understand the king. There's no literal kingdom on earth without the king, literally, on earth in person. When Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, he comes back with the power of the sword of his mouth, the symbol of his spoken word, and the iron scepter. A symbol, yes, but he rules by what? Force in the millennial kingdom. We're not there yet. It's coming, but it only comes when He returns. So in the meantime, we spread the message of the gospel. We spread the influence of a spiritual kingdom. We try to make a difference in society. We even try to make a difference in our laws. But we recognize we're not going to bring in the kingdom until the king returns. Number four, the idea that the church replaces Israel. Once you redefine the church as the kingdom of God, therefore the church then becomes the new Israel. And it changes the identity of Israel to a symbol for the church. So some people read the Old Testament and they read all these promises to Israel and try to apply them then to the church. When they're all about Israel and the promise that God gave to Abraham and gave to Moses, etc., that he would bless them in the land. The challenge is they confuse the unconditional prophecies that Israel gets the land permanently with conditional prophecies about whether or not they're blessed in the land. You say, what do you mean by that? Genesis 12 and 15, Abraham is given unconditional promises that I will bless you, make your name great, and I will give your descendants the land, the promised land, hence the term. That's unconditional. It belongs to Israel, not the Palestinians, not the Muslims, whoever, it belongs to Israel. But in Deuteronomy 11, you have a list of blessings and curses that will come on Israel, conditioned on whether they obey God in the land or disobey. If you obey me in the land, then I'll give you my blessing. But if not, these curses will come on you. Those are conditional. The land is given unconditionally. Whether or not you're blessed in the land is conditioned by your behavior, by your response, and by your faith, etc. If the church has replaced Israel, which is taught in most churches that hold a more reformed position, uh, and even others, 
again, not all Presbyterians, not all Lutherans, not all Methodists, but most of them would hold the idea that the church is the new Israel. Then the question is, has God abandoned Israel? Now, I don't have time this evening. I could show you, and I have them on our website, numerous quotes from theologians from Presbyterian, Lutheran, Reformed churches who say, Israel is under the judgment of God forever. They're apostate. They will never come to faith. God has no future plan for them, etc. What's happening in modern Israel today has nothing to do with ancient Israel, they'll say, and nothing to do with the promises of God. That's taught in a lot of churches. Now, you may never have heard it, but a lot of people do hear it. Well, what did Paul think about all of that? Paul had some tough rides with his own Jewish brothers. But he said in Romans 11, has God cast away his people? No, God forbid. There's a remnant, he said, even now in the church age, according to the election of grace. And then he asked the question, have they stumbled that they should fall permanently? No, God forbid. He holds out the possibility that one day all Israel will be saved. Now, extreme Reformed people get around that by saying the church is Israel and all the church that are elect and are going to be saved will get saved and we're the new Israel. That that's what he meant. But that's not what he said. Uh, he literally believes literal Israel after the flesh would ultimately come to faith. And you'll occasionally hear people say, oh, the people in Israel today, they're not the same as the ancient biblical Israelites. Really? The DNA says they are. They can take DNA from a skeleton dug up by an archaeologist of a Jew, match it to the DNA of modern Jews in Israel, and show that they are of the same descent. So when we look at the Bible, we have to understand the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. The church is pictured in the Bible as the bride of Christ. Israel is the mother of Christ. The church was founded by Jesus Christ. I will build my church. Israel was founded and led by Moses. One could argue founded by God, but led by Moses. The church was born at Pentecost. Israel was born in the Exodus. The emphasis in the church age is on what? Grace. In Israel, the emphasis was on the law. The church has a heavenly citizenship that's clear in the New Testament. Israel has an earthly citizenship. So if the church is the new Israel, and we get the blessings of Israel, then what if we disobey? Do we get the curses? They don't want to go there, uh, etc. Now, God has a clear plan for Israel and a clear plan for the church. God's plan for Israel was moving from the time that... Uh, Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls after the Babylonian captivity until the death of the Messiah, Daniel 9. But the final seven years for Israel don't come to pass until the time of the tribulation period. Leads to number five. The church will go through the tribulation. That's the view of post-tribulationalists, so-called historic premillennialists. There are some people who believe Jesus will come back first and then we will have a literal millennial kingdom, but we will go through tribulation. They just don't limit it to seven years. The church has always faced persecution and martyrdom. So why should the church be exempt 
from the tribulation. Well, the question is the opposite of that. Why should the church suffer the wrath of God? So when people raise challenging questions, flip the question the opposite way. Well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the word trinity is not in the Bible. Do you believe in the trinity? Well, yeah. Well, you believe in it because the concept is there, etc. Why should the church escape the tribulation? Why should the church be under the wrath of God? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not appointed us to what? Wrath. But to obtain salvation. So when we read the book of Revelation, what is it talking about? The seal judgments are the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6. The bowl judgments are the wrath of God the Father. Revelation 14 and 15. The church is in heaven at the marriage. Israel is on earth. The woman whose descendants, her remnant, are being persecuted by the Antichrist, the tribulation saints. So the church has to go up, as I said this morning, to heaven to go to the judgment seat of Christ, to go to the marriage with Christ before she returns. Read Revelation 19. The marriage is in heaven, then they return. Then he defeats the Antichrist. Then he binds Satan in the abyss. Then you have the thousand years of the millennium. The order is very clear in the book of Revelation. And yet I have commentaries in my library by amillennialists who do everything they can to get around that. Well, this isn't necessarily in chronological order. Yeah, because it doesn't fit with your system. Hello, how much more clear can it be? You go up to the marriage, you come back with Jesus uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, you defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet, Satan is bound in the abyss for 1,000 years, Jesus reigns on earth, and at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is released for a brief period of time to test the hearts of those that have been born during the millennium, and then the final revolt occurs, fire comes down from heaven, wipes them out, and you're on to the great white throne judgment, and you're on to the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Uh, why then, if the church goes through the tribulation, the commands, keep watching until I come? In the King James Version, it simply says, watch uh, for me to come. But the Greek implication of its grammar is, keep watching, keep looking. It doesn't say keep watching for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I'm not even looking for the undertaker. I dodged him a few years ago. I'm looking for the upper taker, uh, etc. Jesus said, be ready, Matthew 24, 44. Why do I need to be ready to meet the Lord if I'm going to go through the tribulation first? Keep serving me until I come. Blessed is that servant who keeps on serving until I come. So the reminder to believers is, yes, you have an eye on the sky. Live as though Jesus could come today, but keep your feet on the earth. You've got a job to do in the meantime, to serve the Lord for the rest of your life. If we're not going to escape, why did Jesus say in Luke 21, 36, pray that you escape the tribulation that is coming in the future? Why did he promise to keep the church out from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world? Revelation 3.10. And why in 1 Corinthians 15 does it say, we will not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. 
that presumes the rapture of the living. The dead are raised and the living are caught up. And then quickly the last two. Number six. Oh, we can identify the Antichrist today. Really? People have been trying to do that for 2,000 years and they are never right. If I could give you any practical urging at all, don't fall for people who tell you they know who the Antichrist is. Uh, Hitler. Uh, you know, you got a bunch of pictures up here of various people. I had a guy follow me around probably 25 years ago who insisted Prince Charles of England was the Antichrist. Uh, and he wrote a book called uh, The Antichrist in a Cup of Tea uh, that he has to be from Great Britain. And I said, you're trying to say it's a king of England? He goes, no, it is literally Prince Charles. Yeah, the guy can't run his own life, let alone the world. And besides, he's never going to be king. His mother won't die. Uh, so come on. <laughs> Nobody believes that today. Every kind of speculation. There were people early on who started to say, well, maybe Nero was the Antichrist. Interestingly, the people that lived in the time of Nero did not say that. Well, maybe it was Charlemagne or Napoleon or Mussolini. Mussolini was in Rome, World War II. Hitler, he hated the Jews. He'd have made a good Antichrist candidate, but it wasn't him. Stalin, he hates Christians. Gorbachev, he's got the birthmark on his forehead, the mark of the beast. Prince Charles, Bill Clinton. Uh, is the Antichrist. Hillary's the false prophet. Uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in each of his three names. George Bush, and he just doesn't know any better. Uh, Barack Obama, whoever. Nobody is saying it's Biden. Uh, nobody. I haven't heard one guy suggest uh, that President Biden is the Antichrist. He's not tough enough, he's not smart enough, and he's too old. Uh, whatever. <laughs> and it can't be Kamala Harris because every pronoun about the Antichrist is what? Masculine. It's got to be a man. Now, here's what we do know. And I talked about this this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We know what, neutral, withholdeth that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity is already at work, Paul said back in the first century. Only he who now letteth will let. The Greek implication is restrain. Are you the tennis player that reminded me? What did, what did you say? A let in tennis? When the ball hits the net and goes into play, if they redo it because the net hinders the ball. Yeah, so let can still mean hindered. Uh, restrain, hindered. But in most English terms today, let means what? Permit. Let me go to the store. Uh, so on that one, we have to understand what's the original intent of the text that the restrainer has to be taken out of the way. And he refers to the restrainer as both a what and a he. The only person I can find in the Bible that qualifies with both pronouns is the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is neutral in Greek, pneuma, and the Holy Spirit is a he, a person, a member of the Godhead. Now, the Holy Spirit restrains evil through who? You, through the church, through the spirit-baptized, spirit-born-again, spirit-indwelt followers of Jesus Christ. We could do a better job, but if we were not here, 
voicing our resistance to evil. What do you think will happen five minutes after the rapture when there are no Christians? All hell literally will break loose on planet Earth during that time. There'll be no restraint. The restrainer is still here. But when he's removed, then the wicked one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. So the Antichrist, in my opinion, cannot come to power and cannot be revealed. And it's the same word as you have in the book of Revelation. It's the apocalypse of the Antichrist. He cannot be revealed until after the restrainer is removed. Now, the Holy Spirit is God, and God is omnipresent in the world at all times. God is in heaven. God is everywhere. And in Israel, God's presence was symbolized on the Ark of the Covenant through the Shekinah glory. So the Holy Spirit doesn't disappear during the tribulation period because God doesn't disappear. But the Spirit-baptized church that's in Christ is gone in the rapture. The restraint is removed, and the devil is on the loose. So the restrainer is both a what and a he. It's the Holy Spirit who's removed in the rapture of the church. He's still here to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment because people get saved after the time of tribulation. You can argue all day long about who that is or isn't, but you have in Revelation 7, 144,000 Jews that are saved at least, unless that's symbolic of an even greater number. And it says, and a host of people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, who are they? These are they that were saved out of the great tribulation. So there will be people who come to faith. And finally, God in His mercy, if you read the book of Revelation, sends three angels around the planet. The first angel proclaims the gospel. The second angel warns people, don't take the mark of the beast. And the third angel tells them, Babylon, the kingdom of the beast, is going to be destroyed. So the merciful God gives the planet every opportunity to come to faith. When we look at the progression of events that lead to the Antichrist, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there has to be a falling away from the faith, an apostasy, where you walk away from what you say you believe. And that happened in the 20th century in the mainline churches that mostly went liberal. And fundamental conservative and evangelical churches stood against that and said, no, we're going to believe the Bible is the Word of God. We're going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, died for your sins, literally rose from the dead, is coming again, etc. And they went out and evangelized millions of people in the 20th century. When the 20th century opened, the liberal churches had all the money, all the people, and all the buildings. And fundamental churches had to start all over again, like this one. Had to go find property someplace, go build a new building, go to a storefront like Jerry Falwell Sr. did, uh, and start over in a pop bottle company, uh, the Donald Duck Pop Bottle Company in Lynchburg or whatever. But by the end of the 20th century, when the 21st century began, who's got all the money, all the people, all the buildings, all the radio networks, and all the TV shows? Conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. The liberals are dying, shrinking constantly. That's why their groups keep merging, because they're losing numbers. It's estimated that at the rate it's going, the Episcopal Church will be out of existence in 20 years. 
their membership numbers are dropping so dramatically. Why? They don't believe anything. Uh, you know, it's like that old joke about why, what do you get when you cross a, a Jehovah's Witness with a Unitarian? Somebody who goes door to door for apparently no reason at all. Uh, whatever. <laughs> what churches are totally closed during the COVID shutdown? Not even holding meetings on Zoom. Dead liberal churches. Why? They have nothing to say. So let's just take a vacation and forget this. Here's the problem. We're now 21 years into the 21st century. Where's the apostasy growing today? Unfortunately, in evangelical churches. Where people are starting to say, well, maybe the Bible really doesn't teach the deity of Christ. Oh, really? Then why did Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Why did he say, I and the Father are one? Why did he say, I have the power to forgive your sins? His Jewish audience knew what he was claiming. He claiming to be God. Uh, well, maybe the Bible is just a really good book put together by diverse human beings, and now you've got all this revisionist history, and this was written by a bunch of white Jews who tried to kind of reinterpret everything to their own advantage and demonize the Canaanites and what all and what all and what all. And today, you have pastors who were pastoring Bible-preaching churches who are walking away from it. The wave of apostasy is starting to get to a tsunami out of control. That has to happen before the removal of the restrainer. So that tells me we're getting closer to the rapture all the time. Then the rise of the Antichrist. And then finally, after the tribulation, the day of Christ when Jesus comes at the battle of Armageddon, uh, etc. So the key questions are, is the Antichrist alive today? The answer is what? Not necessarily. If he's going to come to power anytime soon, he'd have to already be at least born. He'd already have to be alive somewhere on planet Earth, but you're not going to know who he is. Could he be alive today? Yes. Does anybody know for sure who he is? No. You don't want to know who the Antichrist is. That's for the people that have been left behind to figure out. You figure out who the Antichrist is, you've been left behind. That's not God uh, at all. You might sense that somebody's views and ideas are anti-Christian and are a serious problem. Maybe so. But Satan's hands are tied. He cannot make a move to empower anybody to become the Antichrist until after the rapture. Now, Satan's brilliant. He can read the Bible, and he can read the newspaper, and he can figure out, it looks like we're getting close. I better find somebody that I could grab onto here. But we don't know whether we're there yet or not. Last question. Can we predict the date of the rapture? No. Well, believers have special knowledge. Yeah, but Jesus said he would come like a thief in the night. Catch you by surprise. In Matthew 24, 36, he said, No one knows the day or the hour of my coming, but my Father only. He also said, Keep watching. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul said, Wait for the Son of God from heaven. Nowhere are we told that we should try to set the date 
for the second coming. Nothing hurts the legitimate study of Bible prophecy more than crazy people running around saying, I know who the Antichrist is and I know the date of the second coming. How many times have you heard that in your lifetime? And it never happens because they don't know. Jesus said the angels don't even know. Well, that means Satan doesn't know because Satan is a fallen what? Angel. If Satan doesn't know the date of the rapture, some crackpot on TV, I got to watch that, I'm on TV, uh, <laughs> or on the radio, doesn't know. And you do more harm than good. Jesus' warning was what? No one knows the time, so be ready all the time because he could come at any time. Don't waste your time trying to guess the time. Be ready all the time. And God's people said, Amen. Now, that was a lot of heavy stuff to cover in one night. But you need to be aware of those things. And while you may never face all of those objections yourself, I can guarantee you your kids will. Because those kind of things before, you had to read in some academic textbook. You had to go to school to be that stupid, uh, etc. But today, you can be 15 years old and pull it up on the internet and be exposed to that. Oh, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Oh, I didn't know that. I think I'll give up on the rapture. Oh, uh, the church is the new Israel, really, uh, etc. And you have all this Palestinian... Uh, emphasis that's going on today, they have learned to play the victim. That Israel's the victim. They bomb them, they rocket them, they attack them, they kill them, and then if they respond one time, they go, see, they victimized us. So in our culture today, whoever is the victim of anything becomes the hero. You see that on the news all the time. Play the victim and you're the hero. And everybody should feel sorry for you. Why? Because our ethics are not built on, thus saith the Lord. They're built on emotion. Uh, and uh, let's feel sorry for people and let's make people feel sorry for me so that I can sue you and make a lot of money, etc. Now that's another whole issue altogether I don't have time to get into. But uh, that's the world in which we live today. And it's a world that's being exposed on your phone and it exposes the depravity of the human heart. That's why people need to really get saved and really have an encounter with Christ and have a spiritual transformation that transforms your heart, your soul, and your mind and how I think about God and the truth. The good news, again, for believers is, ultimately, the real promise of the Bible is, in the end, we win. Jesus is coming again. The question is, is He coming for you? Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, 
please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.